Hey, good morning, everybody. Great to see you. I am fascinated by the rediscovery of perspective in, in medieval painting. Um, it's a really important story. It centers on the work of, of this fellow here, Filippo Brunelleschi. Uh, Filippo Brunelleschi recaptured, he, he improved on a technique, get this, had been lost for 1,000 years, over 1,000 years. Look, before the 15th century, art was rendered without linear perspective. To put it in modern terms, everything was, was 2D. Uh, artists were skilled. They depicted uh, height and, and width fine, but they couldn't, they couldn't draw depth. The Greeks and the Romans had, had known how to mathematically depict depth on a flat surface, but that knowledge had been lost or it was buried in parts of Euclid that nobody read anymore. So medieval artists were reduced to the same level of other cultures throughout world history that could only draw in 2D. Got that? Stuck in 2D. Then, Filippo Brunelleschi of Florence changed everything. 1420, this brilliant mathematician and architect, he did a series of experiments with mirrors. And these experiments helped him figure out how to accurately depict depth in drawing. The, the, the answer involves linear perspective. By making objects that are supposed to be further away smaller, by, uh, by arranging everything on a set horizon, Brunelleschi captured 3D, and, and he, he revolutionized the world of art and architecture. A few years later, his buddy Alberti took all of Filippo's, um, all of his work, and he put it together in a book that has never been out of print ever since. 600 years, has never been out of print. Uh, Leon Battista Alberti on painting. Uh, everyone read this book. The, the world is in an entirely new age of understanding and realize, realization. Um, depth changed everything. Uh, Masaccio, just, this was just eight years after uh, Brunelleschi did his experiments. He began to, to paint in this way. Leonardo da Vinci used Brunelleschi's uh, techniques in all of his paintings. Everyone who really wanted to do great works used linear perspective. They added depth. It is the exact same thing with all of our lives today. People who want to do great things must learn depth. They must do the spiritual geometry that allows them to understand and to pass on that understanding. That means they have got to include God's perspective. Sadly, many people go through life only seeing things in two dimensions. They, they miss the depth that is brought about by looking into things from God's perspective. When a person only looks at the 2D that is human perspective on life, he or she loses out. They, they don't understand what's really happening. Look, a person without the depth of a divine perspective is like somebody trying to see a 3D movie without the glasses, right? It eventually makes you sick. Everything just looks flat and blurry. And that's the issue when we get to 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, Peter, Peter in chapter 3 is thinking through his argument. Remember, the argument of 1 Peter is about standing firm. And in chapter 3, he addresses our need to stand firm in doing good. Uh, especially in loving the brethren. Open your Bible, 1 Peter chapter 3. You'll find it just before 2 Peter, near the end of your Bible. And let's start with our text. Actually, we're going to back up a little bit to where we were last time just to pick up the flow. So go to verse 8, chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic. Love one another and be compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing since you were called for this, so that you may inherit a blessing. Pastor Chad talked beautifully on this last time. He noted that at the end of that thought, uh, Peter adds an extended quote from Psalm 34, and it's got a 
a little bit of Psalm 37 thrown in for good measure. Um, let, let, let's read that quote. Here it is. Uh, it picks up in verse 10. For the one who wants to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do what is good. Let him seek peace and pursue it because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. Verse 12 is the kicker. That's the line that deepens our understanding. The natural human perspective. That's in Peter's argument, but he has great detail regarding this eternal divine perspective. By the way, that's the headline in your notes. If you're in the auditorium, open up your bulletin on the left side. You'll see that headline. If you're online with us, we are thrilled to be studying with you. Uh, there should be a link from your host uh, or available on the website. And you'll see on those notes, Peter adds great detail regarding the divine eternal perspective. Our lesson begins right here in verse 12. God sees all. You ever play peekaboo with a small child? Raise your hand if you ever played peekaboo with a small child. All right. It's really fun. I, the first 184 times, it's really fun. <laughs> and, and it's amazing. The key to peekaboo is the child actually thinks you have disappeared, right? That's what, that's what makes it so absolutely hilarious when you suddenly reappear, right? You were gone. <laughs> You're back, right? The foundation of most comedy is the unexpected. And so that is absolutely a scream when you just suddenly appear, right? Now, there's a fascinating thing that happens most of the time when you're playing peekaboo, there'll come a point where the kid realizes, hey, I can cover myself as well, right? Ha ha ha, peekaboo, right? And because of this logic, the, the little kiddo assumes, can't see me, you can't see me, right? One of our kids, I was playing this with one of our kids one time, the kid was so convinced that he was invisible, he went over to steal a cookie. It was brilliant, right? But as you play, you need to understand this. Peter is a really, really good guide, and he wants us to grow up. So he quotes Psalm 34 as a reminder, hey, hey, you're not children anymore, and I see everything, says the Lord. God sees everything. Trying to hide under the cover of my sin does not work. When I toddle around stealing, and not just cookies, when I steal honor and respect and love and humility, when I do wicked things, what have I become? I've become a spiritual toddler. And what's cute for a two-year-old is not cute for me. There's a loving father who's just waiting for me to do good, and he loves me enough to go spank my hand as I grab another cookie. Peter expands on that truth. He's helping us see the real perspective. So go to verse 13. Who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? Verse 13 is really significant. It reminds us there is this general principle. This is a theological term, the general principle of righteous retribution. And Peter says it remains. It's still in force. Let me explain. There's an attitude that infects nearly every single human at some point in his or her life. Uh, it's gone by different names through the centuries. These days it's usually called entitlement, right? Entitlement. Um, it, 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 listen, it's really easy to slip into entitlement when I am under unfair pressure. As the churches were to whom Peter is writing, they were, under, they were under pressure. And when you're facing evil as being forced on you, it's very easy to rationalize bad behavior on your own part because you can excuse it because everybody else's evil is worse, right? And even when the trials are less, it's very easy. Of course, none of you do this, but other people do this, of course. They'll sit back and say, well, I'm doing good, but I'm the only one. Everybody else around here just slacks off. I'm tired of being the only faithful one around here, right? The, these are examples of entitlement. It is an attitude that poisons people and churches and, and whole societies. 
In verse 13, Peter reminds us, despite real sin, despite real oppression, God's basic principle remains. Do not give in to entitlement because the the law of righteous retribution is still at work. Here's how it works. This is a summary of all the Bible. Do good and you are what, everybody? Do evil and you are, right? This is part of the eternity God has placed in every human heart. Governments, literature, the law of Moses, parenting. Nearly everything on earth operates according to this general principle of retribution. Just because there is persecution doesn't mean we're entitled to live like hell in response. To to compare and excuse my sin violates the law of righteous retribution. This general principle remains. Therefore, Peter commands us, keep devoted to doing good. However... There are times when the general principle is violated. Look at verse 14. Go to verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear or be intimidated. A quote from Isaiah 8. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Sometimes the lines get crossed. Peter grew up in synagogue school. He knew this. He read about it. He memorized it in Psalms, parts of Jeremiah, Habakkuk, and now he's living it. He's seeing it. Peter looks up at this world all around him here in the first century, and he sees that good deeds are being punished and evil is being rewarded. In days like that, when the general principle of retribution is violated, what can you do? What should you do? First, know that you are blessed. But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are what, everyone? You are blessed. Peter was there when Jesus gave one of his favorite stump speeches about this. Uh, Jesus gave this speech apparently a number of times. We're going to read from the, um, from the Matthew 5, part, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. I'd like you to join me on the underlined parts of the text. Matthew 5, starting in verse 11. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When you know that you are blessed, when when you see beyond this immediate situation, it changes your response. This was powerfully depicted by Will Smith in the movie King Richard. Uh, Venus and Serena Williams' dad, Richard Williams, he believed in the ultimate triumph for his family. He knew that he was training these girls for righteousness. So he stood up for his girls, even though thugs beat him for it. He stood up for them. And when they asked him about the beating, he said, it's a blessing to suffer for you. You are guaranteed a blessing even when the principle of righteous retribution is violated. Know that. Know you have a blessing, and do not fear. Keep your head. Uh, Peter quotes Isaiah chapter 8 to explain this. Even if you should suffer for righteousness, you're blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated. Do not fear them or be intimidated. How easy is that to pull off? It's, it's hard, right? 
In fact, Peter implies that without the triune God, it's impossible. This, this is really cool. I want you to look at the context of our passage, okay? Just above our text, in, in chapter 2, verse 20, Peter is rejoicing about the greatness of God the Father who is with us even when we're being unfairly treated, right? And then in chapter 2, verse 21, he brings in God the Son, Christ. Okay, so, so here's the passage. Uh, what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God, and the context is the Father. For you were called to this because Christ, there's God the Son, also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps. Okay, now go down below our passage, and we go to chapter 4, verse 14, and He brings in the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, who is in and with every Christian. Chapter 4, 14, if you're ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you you, right? The, the, this, this triune engagement, it makes all the difference. It turns even trials into triumphs. It, it raises the head of the downtrodden believer, focusing our attention on truths that are present, truths that are to come. Reverend Dr. Um, Johanna Woya understands this dynamic, I think, a lot better than most people. Um, I, I want to introduce you to Dr. Woyala. He, um, he's a confessing Christian, Dr. Woyala, a few years ago, left his, uh, his state church, the Finnish church. It's very hard to explain to uh, Americans what a big deal this is. In Scandinavia, it is, it is just absolutely scandalous to leave the state church. But he did so because the Finnish state church had begun falling into ridiculous worldliness and had finally denied the very authority of Scripture. So Dr. Woyula left the Finnish church, and he helped start a, uh, a group of small churches that are growing mightily, something he explained in an interview with an American magazine, uh, The Federalist, last month. He said this, people don't go to church for social capital now. This is a serious life, and they want to be serious with God. So churches have to build communities that stand on solid biblical doctrine, close quote. Of course, that makes you wonder in your, uh, in your Finnish dog husky voice, uh, roof growl, roar, which of course translates as, okay, what does that have to do with fear? So he started new churches, what does it do with fear? Thank you for asking. In a message a few years ago, I referenced this lady, uh, Dr. Paivi Rosanen. Uh, she's a medical doctor. She's a long-term member of the Finnish parliament. 2004, she wrote a book titled, As Man and Woman, He Created Them, Homosexuality and the Challenge to the Christian Concept of Humanity. Pastor Woyala endorsed that pamphlet. Here's his endorsement. He wrote, It is biblically accurate regarding both the dangers of sin and the divinely given dignity, value, and human rights of all, including all who identify with the LGBTQ community. Close quote. So what's the problem? Well... Seven years after he wrote that, Finland added LGBTQ to its list of protected citizens under the country's hate speech law. Rosinen and Woyla were investigated then. No charges were brought, and they shouldn't have been because there was no violation. But now, late in this year as we sit here, there's a new investigation, and, and this is fascinating because the actual charge against them says they think things. It's not just what they say. They think things that are biblical. I want to read you a quote from the a chief investigator of the Finnish police. This is a direct quote. Our understanding of Finland's law would make publishing the Bible itself a hate crime. Now do you see the reason for fear? It's pretty easy to become intimidated, right? 
But our Finnish brethren refuse to fear. They are full of joy. Every time you see them, every time they're speaking, they are just full of hope, just like Peter. They delight in the triune God and his abundant blessings. The main thing that helps them avoid all the fear is found in the very next verse. Look at verse 15. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy. Jesus is Lord. And when we acknowledge his lordship, you know what happens? We leave fear behind. Dr. Wojula spoke to this just last week. He wrote the paragraph that you find on the right side of your notes. Look there, and you'll see that he said this. We have to learn from the past, Christians who have suffered under persecution, and be prepared. But it's not something to be worried about, because Christ remains faithful to his church. And wherever he is leading us, he will come with us. He will provide everything that is needed for the future of his Christians and his church. All God's people said, amen. J.R.R. Tolkien live through terrible evil. He learned that acknowledging the Lord's work changes everything, even, even when you can't really see clearly what God is doing. Tolkien captured this in a beautiful scene in his Lord of the Rings. Um, this part is not in the films, which are wonderful, but you really should read the books. Um, there's this moment uh, where the fellowship is in this dark, dark mines of Moria. They're, they're wandering around. It's a very dark, very dangerous place. And, and then this is what Tolkien writes. Do not be afraid, said Aragorn. The others were crowded behind, waiting anxiously. Do not be afraid. I've been with him, our leader, Gandalf the wizard, on many a journey, if never one so dark. And there are tales of greater deeds of his than any I have seen. He will not go astray. He's led us in here against our fears, but he will lead us out again at whatever cost to himself, close quote. He will lead us home. That is exactly what this Advent wreath represents. The Lord is our holy guide. Jesus came to us when we were lost in darkness, and however dark this life becomes... His is the light that will lead us out at whatever cost to himself. We're going to light the first candle of Advent for this season. As we do so, I would encourage you to take just a moment and pray. Why don't you praise God for his lordship? Praise Jesus for being the leader, the one who really can lead us no matter what. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We praise you for the leadership, the lordship of Jesus Christ. We pray that we will rest in him and that we will follow him boldly like wise hobbits. We will follow our leader. That makes fear go away. In Jesus' name, amen. What can we do when the general principle of righteous retribution gets, gets violated? Speak truth. The next part of verse 15. Ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, notice that this witness to truth is in response to a query, right? When you're full of hope and joy, people want to know why, especially when they're the ones that are beating on you, right? Why are you smiling? Now, I bring that up because, like all humans, Christians are prone to take truth and hit people over the head with it, all right? Peter is not calling for us to weaponize Scripture or reason. Give defense in the Greek is the word apologia. 
It's a, it's a legal term from the Roman courts. Apologia means to justify something with a reasonable explanation. It came into our tongue as what word? What word is it in English? Apologetics, right? It, it's the practice of, of relating why. Why are we justified in our hope no matter how difficult our battles? By the way, speaking of battles, the greatest fencing scene in all of movie history gives a perfect explanation of apologia. Enjoy. Thought it fitting, considering the rocky terrain. Naturally, you must expect me to attack with Capafera. Naturally, but I find the tibble cancels out Capafera. Don't you? Unless the enemy has a study, he's a good guy. Which I have. You are wonderful. Thank you. I've worked hard to become so. I admitted you are better than I am. Then why are you smiling? Why are you smiling? Because I know something you don't know. And what is that? I am not left-handed. <laughs> I am not left-handed. Why are you Christians smiling? Everybody's attacking you and happy at you. Ah, because I know something you don't know, right? You know something your opponents don't know. You can explain. No, take too long. You can sum up the reason for the hope that is in you. Amen? All right, read verse 16. Back to verse 16. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. We must stay clean. Every time I hear a Christian say, I just, I have to fight fire with fire. I, I'm just, I have to get dirty down in there with them. Every time I hear that, and I hear that far too often, I picture a scene that occurred in Hennessy, Oklahoma when I was about eight years old. I was at my friend's farm. His mother told us that we had to go outside. She, for some reason, seemed to think that we were a problem while she was making cookies. We were just sampling to make sure that everybody was going to be safe. It was taking one for the team, but she kicked us out. Said, I can't, four boys in the house, I can't get anything done. She kicked us all out. We were outside about 20 minutes. We'd been outside all day, but we were outside again about 20 minutes. When she appeared at the door, when Miss Dorothy appeared at the door, she found four boys absolutely covered in muck from the compost pile. Their compost pile was a mixture of animal manure and rotting vegetables, right? And the minute she appeared, every one of the boys said, he started it. Now, just for the record, I just want to be clear on this. Donnie actually did start it. He did. I don't care if he's a famous surgeon now. He threw the first missile of muck, and that's the facts. But... Even if Donnie did start it, and he did, even if he did, was I justified in throwing manure back at him? Yes or no? No. And neither are you. Neither are you right when you roll in the dirt with the opponents and haters of Christianity. Addressing recent events in America, a young commentator, um, Ali Stuckey, said, said this. She made this observation. Christians must declare with courage what is biblically true. Our courage should far surpass that of comedians and public celebrities who speak out against a lie. We must not fear cancellation or criticism. We know that the same good God who made the universe and everything in it is love, 1 John 4, 8. Therefore, any truth revealed by God is an affirmation of love, close quote. Speak truth, but do so in love. Do it without getting dirty. When the general principle of righteous retribution is violated, what can we do? Know you're blessed. Don't fear. Don't fear or be intimidated. How can that possibly be? Because you regard Christ the Lord as holy. He is your leader. 
And then you're ready to give a, a defense for the hope that's in you, and you can do so with a clear conscience. You stay clean. Finally, you err toward non-resistance. Read verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Our neighbor, uh, Dr. Swindoll down the street, had a great comment on this verse. He said, unjust suffering is always better than deserved punishment. Uh, I mentioned earlier the movie King Richard, noting how Mr. Williams erred toward non-resistance. He was beaten for doing good, and he refused to, to return in kind. However, there's a moment in the story where Richard, Richard snaps. He, he goes and gets his company-issued pistol. He was, a, he was a security guard. And he goes and he hides in a dark alley waiting for this gangbanger who had, who had really, really severely beaten Richard for no reason whatsoever. And just as, just as Mr. Williams is about to go out and commit evil, he is absolutely shocked by suddenly this car flies by and there's a drive-by shooting and the evil gangbanger is gunned down right there. It's a very dramatic moment in the film. It's very powerful. And in the film, it is treated as a gift from God. It is a reminder that whatever you see, whatever you think is going on, the rule of righteous retribution is never, ever going to disappear, right? The Christian should err toward non-resistance. No matter what you're enduring, the Christian must not be the shooter. Remember, Peter's big idea is to give us perspective, right? He wants to open our eyes to the depth of this divine, eternal perspective. Okay, the rest of this section describes how that divine, eternal perspective is based in one character, in the person of Jesus the Christ. All right, read verse 18 through 22. Let's finish our passage. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the past were disobedient, when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is, eight people, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subjected to him. The thesis statement is in verse 18. These are amazingly deep sentences. Okay, let's just diagram the subject and the verb. The subject is Christ, Jesus the Christ. What, what is his verb? What is his movement? What's his, what's his thing? What is it, everybody? Suffered suffered. That Jesus suffered. That's the basic message of the sentence. Now, look at the first contrast in this thesis statement. Once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. He, the only righteous, died for all the unrighteous. Does that seem fair? Does that seem fair? Yes or no? No, it certainly doesn't. But this is where we're drawn into the depth of God's eternal perspective because you look more deeply at it and you see that it is fair given that someone had to pay for sins. It just seems like the wrong one suffered. However, that's not how God the Son sees it. Look, look at Jesus' motive. Uh, you see the clause that he might bring you to God? It's called a hina clause in Greek. It, it begins with hina, the, the Greek word hina. When it's used like this, a hina clause displays a reason for something, a motive. Uh, it points out causation. It answers why. It explains significance. So what was it that caused Jesus to make suffer his verb. What caused him to, to embrace this contrast whereby the righteous bled for the unrighteous? You know what it was? 
you. Jesus went through all in order to allow you and, and me to have eternal fellowship with God. Jesus suffered for you. Now, look at the second contrast. Jesus died, and then he rose. He was, he was put to death in his human body, but resurrected by the Spirit. You know, actually, um, just for what it's worth, the New Testament Scriptures and other places give all three members of the triune God uh, credit for the resurrection of Jesus. Spirit, Son, and Father are all involved. That in mind, go back to the motive. Go back to the Hina clause. That he might bring you to God. That means that where Jesus is, we get to be also. You see... Elsewhere, I don't have time to go into it, but Peter and also the apostles Paul and John, they all point out that the reason we can be where Jesus is is because we are placed spiritually in Christ. If you believe in Him, you're placed in Him. Okay? So, so Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but He was resurrected in the Spirit. Since we are spiritually placed in Him, that means that we are also eternally alive. And that perspective, that changes everything. Even more than mathematical perspective changed painting. Now, the next part, verse 19 through most of verse 21, is a little digression about how God's at work in time and space, where, where God's activity also validates this divine perspective. Okay, there are really fun discussions about the meaning of verse 19. I lack the space to go into them here. So I'm just going to share the conclusion that I think is most likely. I think Peter's telling us that Jesus went and showed fallen angels that they failed. They failed to thwart God's plan. You see, the fallen angels, demons, they were set from the moment of their, of their fall. They were set against the work of God. They plagued His work on earth. They, they provoked great sin on earth before the flood. These spirits seem to have rejoiced in Jesus Christ's crucifixion, His death. Do you know this about demons? They're under God's ban. They are guaranteed eternal damnation, and yet they are absolutely unrepentant. But God the Son... And God the Spirit appeared to those imprisoned spirits and proclaimed truth. I would imagine that the Shekinah glory of God appearing in their faces, with Jesus being sinless and alive, that was probably proclamation enough, right? Unlike the demons and all the humans around them, Noah's family adopted the, the eternal divine viewpoint, and that saved them. That's the point in verse 20. It changes us. It protects us when we construct our lives using God's perspective. Do we do that? Last week, uh, Paul David Tripp, a Christian writer, he released a great article on this. Look, look at what Dr. Tripp said. The doctrine of eternity is an enormous help when it comes to our struggle of values because it teaches us what is truly valuable and worth living for. For some of us, this means that we spend way too much time, energy, money, and worry on our lawn. Or maybe you're that husband who's invested too much on your man toys. Perhaps you have too much makeup. Too many outfits in your closet. Are your true values revealed by the fact that you spend more time on your appearance than you do in your daily personal time of worship? Maybe you're a university student and keeping up with social media has become far too important. Close quote. That, by the way, is what the people around Noah were doing. Uh, it, Jesus summarized the situation in his Olivet Discourse near the end of Matthew chapter 24. For in those days, Jesus said, before the flood... They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving a marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark. It's not that such activities are bad any more than a pretty lawn is bad or a nice hairdo is bad. Such things aren't bad. They're just not enough. They're, they're just 2D. They're, they're not primary. 
God saves Noah and reminds us that the divine eternal perspective focuses on the Lord first. Dr. Tripp wrapped up his article with these thoughts. He said this. Actually, he had more than this, but some of them I didn't like. So I just used the ones I like. All right, here we go. The existence of eternity tells me that this is not a destination, but a preparation for a final destination, which means that my life is not just about the pleasures of the moment. Eternity invites us to understand the highest human pleasures are found in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. All God's people said, the existence of eternity tells me where I should be investing my resources, where to focus my my time, energy, and money that will last for all eternity. The existence of eternity tells me the danger of giving way to temptation to worship the creation and not the creator. The eternal perspective assures me that we are never alone. Because the King of Kings has invaded our lives by His grace. He never sends us into battle without going with us. Amen? The existence of eternity gives me hope when I get my values completely wrong. It's a hope not based on my track record, but on the grace and goodness of the Lord. Amen. And then verse 21 brings it back to church life. Baptism is a great picture of all this. Because baptism is, is, a, is an image of our salvation as we trust God for the right perspective, as we trust Him as part of eternity. By the way, that's what a good conscience is. You know what? A, con- a conscience is something that sees clearly. It, it, it knows. It, it can tell right and wrong. It, it has God's perspective. By the way, speaking of baptism, tune in next week because you're going to enjoy as we celebrate baptisms up here. Now, Peter's thesis... From verse 18, it's repeated at the bottom of the passage. Go to the very end of verse 21. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subjected to him. Jesus, the God-man, is resurrected. He is exalted at the Father's right hand. He is glorified over all powers in heaven or on earth. This is so momentous that I really struggled to summarize it. The best I could do was the clunky, very clunky sentence I put in your notes. Jesus' resurrection exaltation and glorification validate the divine eternal perspective. Think this through. If I know, if I see that Jesus is exalted and that I am in him by faith and I'm going to one day be with him physically even as I am in him now spiritually, if I see that, why should I be afraid of any other power? What? If Jesus is exalted God... What can stand eternally against me? The answer is nothing. This changes me. This changes how I react to powers. It changes how I respond to persecution. It changes how I treat people. David Wade of our pulpit team sent me a great observation on that. David wrote me this week and said, Wayne, I have found that keeping this in mind, we were talking about Peter's thesis, really does change my focus, my values. He said, one particular aspect of this is reflected in 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 18. Here's what that says. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know Him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old is gone, a new life has begun, and all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to Himself through Christ, and God has given us the task of reconciling people to Him. Amen. My partner finished up his note this way. He said, being a new creature in Christ and part of the new creation changes very much how I view people, both the unsaved and our brothers and sisters in Christ. Close quote. 
by keeping the divine, eternal perspective in mind. You know what we do? We stop fear in its tracks. And we treat people differently. Let me put it this way. We become reconcilers. We become reconcilers instead of dividers. Pray with me about that, please. Let's pray. Father, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. We, we golly, we just struggle so much with operating all the time with this flat 2D perspective. And it seems so vivid to us because <sighs> we forget how to see. And because of that, we get caught up in things and we become dividers instead of reconcilers. I pray that change is starting right now. That I and my brothers and sisters, wherever they may be around the world right now, that we become we become partners in the ministry of reconciliation because we see, as Edith Schaefer put it so brilliantly a generation ago, it is a way of seeing. And Father, I pray for anyone who is studying with me that is not part of this family of God. They may be, they may be very nice from a human 2D point of view, but they have never believed in Jesus. Lord, I pray you draw them to yourself right now. Friend, Jesus died on the cross, just as we learned from that henna clause, for you. For you. God loves you so much. You, a sinner, that Jesus gave his life. And God the Son rose from the dead so that if you believe him, you're in him with everlasting life. Trust him right now. Believe in Jesus as your Savior. He is the Lord. And he loves you. Trust him. If you just trusted Jesus as Savior, raise your hand, please. Everybody else is still praying. I just want to read good for you. Amen. Father, we praise you for these believers in Jesus. We ask you to bless them, everyone. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen.